Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I'm pretty clearly still coming up with language for this idea that's emerging within me in part because of Trans Regret Snoopy and her podcast. Uh, that's my guest today. That is her anonymous moniker. So she doesn't uh, go by her real name uh, for whatever reason. They're her reasons. So I call her Trans Regret Snoopy, which is a name that she explains uh, early on in our conversation. Um, and I believe I get into this a bit with her on the episode, but just today, as I was thinking back about this episode and listening to um, a recent episode of her podcast, um, I came up with another angle of saying what I'm trying to say. And here's what it is. What she's doing on her show is an example, I think, of what Christianity might look like when it has re-sprouted after centuries of colonialism, patriarchy, nationalism, predatory capitalism have all been co-opted and dressed up in Christian language. That Christianity, or as it's often called Christendom, where Christianity is in power, basically Christendom, um, will eventually die. And an optimistic version of the exodus that we're now seeing out of evangelicalism and other branches of Christianity in the States is that this is the beginning of that necessary death so that this rebirth can take place. And so if this is true, or insofar as this is true, listening to my guest talk about her love of Christ, hearing the way she interviews people from a massive cross-section of the population, 
many of whom are in groups that I don't regularly come into contact with, is almost like a look into the future. And it gives me hope and it gets me stoked to be a Christian. Uh, So this is technically one of those uh, So You Want a Bible podcast episodes. So we we had the one with Pete and Jared. We had the one with two, Two Feminists Annotate. And now we've got the one with Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. That's the name of her show. Um, I really was enjoying her most recent episode, episode 25, 24, 25, um, on Passover. I would highly recommend that. If you find her interesting, I would go straight over and check out that episode. There's also an episode that I did of her show further back uh, many weeks ago, months ago. But I will have a link to that in the show notes. Okay, I think that's it. Let's just uh, get into this really enjoyable conversation with Trans Regret Snoopy. Trans Regret Snoopy. Uh, it's very it's very funny to be forced to refer to someone by uh, their anonymous handle, but you are anonymous, and so I will not be calling you by your name. Uh, we will be going with the moniker, Trans Regret Snoopy, which we will explain in a minute. Don't worry, guys. We're not going to go 90 minutes here without explaining what the hell that name means or where it came from. But thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It um, means a lot to be uh, invited onto a show that I'm a great, uh, great fan of, and um, I really appreciate all the work that you do. So, uh, thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate that as well. And our rapport today has already been built up because this is actually our second long form conversation. As we're taping this, our episode of your show uh, just went live. Your show is called Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. And uh, I was a guest and we were talking about Matthew 6, the, the middle chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. It was a very good conversation, very interesting and fun. And I would recommend it to listeners of this show uh, if for no other reason than that it's me actually talking about the Bible, <laughs> which almost never happens. I thought it was a really great conversation, and, and, and I think we touched on a lot of topics that uh, other Bible shows maybe don't uh, quite go into as as deeply as we did. So, yeah, uh, and and the Sermon on the Mount is my favorite passage of Scripture. It's it's the most central to my own life, and I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the Sermon on the Mount and its centrality for you later. But I want to start with a little. I want to motivate this conversation with something that I've been kicking around that I'll just kind of leave out there and you can respond to it, or it can just kind of be in the background for people to think about. A lot of people in theological spaces will make an argument for what are called contextual theologies or marginalized theologies. So we're talking about liberation theology, feminist theology, womanist theology, trans theology, whatever, intersex theology, that these are really part of the gospel insofar as theologically all theology is contextual. So they show us that our dominant sort of like white straight male theology tradition that probably some, some uh, majority of Christians in the West take as, as just plain theology and everything else is the weird theology. Well, it's contextual too. It has been influenced by dominant culture as opposed to marginalized culture. And so it's it's calling that to account. That's a as a theological argument that I 
wholeheartedly believe, and I imagine you do too, uh, <laughs> as you're doing sort of contextual theology on your show. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I think that that would – I would say that I'm definitely not a theologian in general, and I'm not an expert at – you know in uh, biblical studies – I'm just someone who's very enthusiastic about the book. So I, I try as much as I can to address certain topics from an earnest point of view and yeah. a point of view that I'm, that is informed by the life that I've lived. So in that way, yes, I think that's kind of how we approach it. But I mean, I think that it's clear that the way that the Christian church or the majority Christian church has been developed today is interpreting particular passages of the Bible as generously as um, as other theologies now are taking it and running with other passages and saying, well, this is now what we believe in, and this is the part that we should be listening to. There isn't, I don't think, a denomination in the world that doesn't ignore uh, parts of the Bible in some way or another. 100%. Yeah, so it's like acknowledging that we all have a canon within a canon and just laying our cards on the table rather than pretending that we don't. Absolutely. So – Anyway, all that is to say, now I'm going to leave that theological argument aside entirely and say that what I've been thinking about is sort of more of a sociological phenomenon or claim or argument. And that is that, like, it hit me the other day, and I think I'm, I might be late to the game here, that a lot of my fellow progressive Christian podcasters and, and thinkers and theologians and stuff maybe beat me here years ago. But it hit me in a fresh way that especially in this moment right now where prominent white evangelical leaders have gone like full Trump conspiracy election batshit crazy, especially in this moment, but probably before that moment, not at a theological level, but at a sociological level, there is just a group, some large group of Westerners or Americans or whatever that simply cannot hear the gospel, the, the real gospel, whatever that is, the, the actual, whatever Jesus actually has to offer us, cannot hear it from straight white men or at least straight white evangelical men or, you know, some for each person, I'm sure it's slightly different, but some version of that kind of dominant cultural complex. And that in order to really, to really hear and see what Christ has to offer, it's just for a while anyway, it needs to come from somewhere else. And so that I thought about that the other day, maybe uh, two weeks ago. And then a week and a half ago, a few days later, I was listening to your podcast as I was preparing to come onto your podcast. And I heard you just read Matthew 5. You just literally, you just read Matthew 5 ESV translation at the top of the show, you know, near the top of the show. And I had a spiritual experience <laughs> driving in my car. So it was like for me, and it's it seems so it seems kind of silly actually. Like I know I I know that Matthew five has has always been there for me, but hearing it in your voice, in the context of your show, you're a trans person, your guest was a gay man, a gay Southern Baptist, which I was his own kind of interesting he, his whole thing was very interesting. Uh, just hearing it in that context, like just the same words, but it hit me new. And I don't know, it was powerful and maybe sort of anecdotal evidence for this kind of this claim uh, or argument I'm making. So 
that's that's where I'm coming from. I feel like I've been doing a lot of the talking here. So please please jump in and, and share your your thoughts on this idea. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that the viewpoint that now we've heard enough from the white men, we need to to let other people speak. I don't necessarily disagree with that notion, but like as somebody who's lived uh, as a trans person out in public for many, many years, I went through a phase where that was absolutely my MO. That was how I operated. This is like, you know, trans people to the front. Like I absolutely believe that wholeheartedly. And then as time went on, I found that my dependence on like identity politics as like what always informs who, you know, what I do and what I involve myself with kind of started to deteriorate in the name of um, trying to find a more like-minded group of people that actually believe what I believe. And you'll find that a lot of these sort of in-groups, a lot of these um, social outcast kind of groups have their own sets of weird dogmas and, and, and rules and, and things that, that you have to navigate and, and move around. And, and it gets exhausting, which is the exact opposite of the message in the Bible to, to forsake, you know, it's to forsake all those random rules and, and, and let the Pharisees be Pharisees and rather, you know, focus on the truth that's in the text. So, from that end, like I'm not per- specifically trying to create a show where I'm a trans woman, listen to me talk, because I don't really think that anyone needs to hear me talk about the Bible. I'm not an expert on it. I'm just enthusiastic about it. The show itself, though, I think is interesting because it's engaging kind of people in a way that other biblical shows or Christian shows don't do. Two things about that that I think are part of why I had that experience. One of them is what you just said that you're not – it's not like a trans Christian show, which I would be interested in, frankly. I mean I, I would have interest in that anyway. But actually it was for me that you were just like stoked on Matthew 5. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was actually part of it for me was that it, it was not – agenda is the wrong word, but it, it didn't – it wasn't particularly coming from that angle. It just was coming – from that community in a straightforward sort of basic piety kind of a way. And that really hit me. And then the other thing you mentioned is that there is just like the way I would say it is that you end up and will end and will continue to engaging a slightly different slice of the world because of your background and all of that, like the guests you have on and the people who will find themselves listening both. And so that is a value in and of itself, also unrelated to any sort of particular lens or particular agenda, be it political, theological, whatever. And so, yeah, I actually think that that's part of what what really hit me about it. It's inevitable, I think, that we approach certain topics like discrimination, homophobia, transphobia, like because of the people that – I've had on my show. That's what we've hit on. But I'm, I'm really hoping that as far as the purpose of the show itself, and maybe we'll talk a little more about this later, that I, I get people from all kinds of uh, parts of the faith spectrum and people who are lifelong Christians, people who are Jewish and people who are atheists. I really just want to engage with the text in the most earnest way possible. Obviously, if you listen to any of my shows, it's going to become very clear about how I feel about the gospel, about how I feel about the story of Christ and and you know my beliefs as a Christian. But that's not necessarily what I want to lock the show into. Though I think anyone 
that comes to the Bible with an open heart will will have similar experiences in one way or another, even if they don't wind up being a Christian. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, you know, you did have me on, and I am like a living, breathing, perfect privilege walk score. <laughs> so, so, you know, there, you got, you got a normie. Um, <laughs> at least one. So I, we are going to talk about, we're going to talk about all of this stuff. We're going to talk about your engagement with the text, your love of the Bible, your more recent kind of conversion experience. And we're going to talk about some of this like trans activism, the kind of in-group stuff that you were talking about as it relates particularly to trans community. But I, I also will relate it to progressive Christianity community as well. But before that, let's let's get some biography behind us. Let's get some context. So you were raised Catholic. Is that right? Yes, I was kind of nominal. So tell us about that. Well, I I think that it was a very kind of a regular Catholic upbringing in a a suburban church. And, um, you know, it wasn't particularly fundamentalist or or um, or orthodox. It was, you know, community groups within the church and, you know, events, community events and things like that. And that was on one side of my family. I was actually raised in a family of divorce. So I had my father and my stepmother and then my mother and my, and my stepfather. And so one side of the family was, in, you know, a little more uh, intensely Christian or or at least following the the routine. And over time, I found that their belief has actually grown stronger. My mother was a cantor at the church and my stepfather was involved in the, in the groups there. So that part of my upbringing was actually very normal. The other half of my family was sort of more spiritual, non-religious. You know, my father doesn't have a ton of uh, belief in, in God, Although we did go to church uh, once or twice, I think when I was um, growing up with them too, he was the first one I had a discussion about atheism with. He was the first one where when I started to have real doubts and and at times I think especially once I started to to hit my teens, I started to have all these like thoughts of well th- this part of the book isn't making sense and 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 I don't really understand what the lesson is here and how could God do this. There weren't a lot of answers for me within the church. There weren't a lot of people who were willing to engage in good faith the questions that I had and the doubts that I had. Most of them would just say, pray through it or get over it or not get over it. But you know what I mean? I mean, there's this normal like doubt is normal and you have to pray through it. Whereas there were people on the other side of the faith spectrum that were telling me it's perfectly normal to have doubts and and read into them a little bit and, right. and form your own belief system. You know, I was I was confirmed Catholic. I, I went through all the sacraments, but I came to a point where I had to basically separate myself from the church entirely because I just had too many questions. I was, I think the phrase that progressive theologians use now is uh, in the wilderness. I was in the wilderness for a long time. And during that time, I had all kinds of changes happen in my life. Um, I went from being essentially straight white male to being like a queer trans woman over the course of 15 years. And that, that kind of changes, obviously, your whole uh, perspective of things. So at a certain point, uh, I believe it was mid last year, I really started to try to engage in faith again because I felt lost, because I felt like I didn't have any purpose in life, because I felt like I didn't really have anything to not just believe in overall, but anything to live for. 
I, yeah. I felt really lost and hopeless. I've, I've struggled with depression my entire life since I was 13 or 14 years old. I've had these kind of um, self-destructive tendencies and, and really negative thoughts. And that really heated up in my, in my 20s. In my late 20s, I started to feel like very uh, suicidal on a regular basis. And, and I was self-harming and I was doing all these kinds of things that were really uh, terrible to myself um, because I didn't know what I was doing with my life. So I'd actually, when I was a younger teen, I was kind of involved in like Christian music. I, I'd play in a punk rock band that played churches sometimes. And I was really my, the first concert I ever went to was um, Five Iron Frenzy and the W's and Switchfoot at a place in St. Paul. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was an incredible show. I mean, like it really just like something clicked in my head. I loved ska for a long time. And obviously we all fell away from that for a little while. I, but, I'm um, back. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> back too. in it. I listen to I have a I have a playlist called Pick It Up that gets uh, gets shuffled pretty regularly. And I've and I've been introducing Soren, especially to uh, first wave Jamaican ska, which he seems to like at nine months. Oh, there's um, just an incredible yeah. catalog of material from that era, too. Oh, it's, it's so amazing. much. And the recordings are so cool. Anyway, all right. I want to actually not get too far ahead of ourselves too quickly. So let me just – I want to understand a bit more the nature of your upbringing, your religious upbringing. And I promise I will – I do want to talk a lot about this kind of more recent sort of conversion or reconversion or whatever you want to call it. So you, you're – like in high school, let's say, you're Catholic. You've been confirmed. You're going to mass sometimes? By high school, it was a sometimes kind okay. of question mark. It wasn't on a, a super regular basis, although it was always Christmas and Easter and, um, right. you know, the, the big sacraments and or the big holidays or whatever, you know, I, I would be there. But it was mostly just because that was what my family was doing and I didn't want sure. to make my mom sad. And I, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of be there. And there, there, there came a point where I just said, you know what, I don't believe in this anymore i right. can't do this anymore i feel i feel fake i walk through the doors i feel like i'm gonna burst into flames and but you um, didn't feel did you not feel <laughs> fake in that sense like at the christian punk and ska shows because we have a very very similar teen experience i too was in a christian punk band a couple of them and played those shows and went to those shows and five iron was one of my first shows and you know so it's it's that part feels the same i feel like there was a different kind of an authenticity to that scene than I experienced in other Christian communities. I wasn't raised Catholic, so mine was more of an evangelical upbringing. I, I think that there's a real sense of community at events like that. Oh, yeah. Um, be they small concerts or really big shows, that is, I mean, that I feel like is mirrored in secular festivals and secular concerts, too. Totally. You do have these sort of like semi-spiritual experiences when, you know, I, I went to see a show uh, a year and a half or so at the Mississippi Studios here in Portland, and I saw Pure Bathing Culture, who were an incredible band. So good. And the, the guitar player is just ripping the whole time, and he gets this climax in the guitar solo, and basically the whole crowd just starts to whoop like like uh, wolves. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and so this is this is the sort of connection that, you really feel. And I think in a way there is a spiritual connection there, but I don't know if at the time what I was feeling was an affinity for the faith itself that was behind the music or it was just the uh, excitement of being at a show and having this energy in the air and things like that. I guess my question is about authenticity as much as it is about experience and feeling just like the authenticity of the community. I mean, it strikes me that there's a, that there is a connection between marginal in terms of, and maybe this is wrong, but Marginal in terms of like subcultural, you know, punk rock movement, stuff like that, and marginal communities like sexual minorities or 
other things like that. There's a, it's smaller, it's tight knit. There is that kind of collective effervescence at these certain kind of events and stuff. But also it felt to me like, at least for a band like Five Iron, especially the faith, like I've talked about this elsewhere. I doubt you've heard it, but Reese Roper and his lyrics in Five Iron, like are a big reason that I was a Christian at that point. Like, and maybe am today. Like he had such a serious and authentic faith and he was like critiquing American frontierism and critiquing manifest destiny and militarism and like all this stuff and doing it with the words of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that r- really got its hooks into me in my teenage years. It sounds like maybe it didn't quite get it hook its hooks into you the same way that early on or else you maybe would have had a different next 10 years or so. No, I think because of the, the the nature of the doubt that I had at the time and and the way that I was kind of exploring a little bit more, I, yeah. I did take like the last really good faith effort I made at the youth classes that we'd have every week at our church was to engage with a piece of Christian art in some way and, mm. and to discuss the meaning of it. And I chose Far, Far Away by Five Iron Frenzy oh. and lovely so song. Um, Great song. But I think it was more at the time, more of like a stepping stone into other alternative culture, more so than it was like my cementing of any kind of uh, faith basis for myself. It was always kind of, it was built on sand, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't built on, on stone. So what I was built on a fistful of sand, might we say, (laughs) oh, deep cut for the five iron fans. All right, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> um, but, but it sort of led me then into um, more secular music and yeah. more s- secular scenes and and involving myself in in a crowd then that I think took me even further away from that message. I think I kind of wound yeah. up getting wrapped up to wrapped up into more of like a, a drug scene and more of like a punk rock, rock and roll scene, the hardcore scene. You know, it was always just like here. These are my this is my in group. And it wasn't at the time. It wasn't like an identification thing. It wasn't a gender or sexuality thing. It was just like we're all uh, I think the phrase that Jack on the first episode of my show used was godless libertines, which <laughs> kind of fits. I mean, that's what it was. We were yeah. living exactly how we thought we could live and as well as we thought that we could live, despite the fact that we were all young and poor and and, um, you know, crammed in six people to a house and things like that. Right. That's so funny because so you, our two experiences of the Christian punk ska scene are confirmatory of two completely opposite views about what that scene does. You confirmed all the worst fears of our parents <laughs> that it would be a, a slippery slope into like crust punk and drugs. Yeah. Packing a bunch of youth into a house to mutually ruin each other's lives. And my experience <laughs> and my experience was like, it kept me tethered to the faith by, by being good music. And we don't have to go into it here, but I, I've said many times that for me, there was such a strong link between the ethic of punk rock and the ethic of Jesus, uh, among other places, the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. Uh, and so that actually kept me tied in to the faith in a way. It's so, so that's really funny. We don't have to like dwell on that, but I just think it's interesting that it proved anecdotally <laughs> proved both opposite views. Well, the, um, the thing I found really interesting was that in some way, Christianity stuck with me throughout my life. Yeah. And, and But I would always identify with these sort of like lost people, these, mm. these people who were Christian and, and left the faith. One of the first records I ever bought was It's Hard to Find a, Fen- a Friend by Peter the Lion. Yep. And, and, you know, his journey resonated with me because he knew 
that there was this basis in him that I think in a way informed like his moral code and informed like how he thought he should live. But then as his doubts crept in and as he kind of separated himself from the message of Jesus, he found himself angrier and angrier at this God that seemed to him to be indifferent and absent and yeah. things like that. So, um, you know, and morally it's, blameworthy. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, even that language in his music has, I don't know if we want to spend all the time talking about music today, but yeah. his music has kind of tempered that message a little bit too. And he's got this song and I could be way wrong in the interpretation of this on, on the most recent Pedro the Lion album called Quietest Friend that I think is a way him talking about God and how there is still something there. There's some, some part of mm. his mindset that's still oh, that God is Jesus. the quietest friend. I love that record, by the way. It's, I'm so... I'm so pumped for the however many more records that he makes with Andy yeah, Park. Bring them on. Yeah, I oh. own them all. So bring, bring them on. Man. Yeah. On. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So one of the differences, though, in our. So we were. We, we actually were not that far off in age, and we spent really a, a lot of parallel kind of stuff there in our, in our youthful years, our late teens and 20s and stuff. But one difference in our experience is that I was and have remained like firmly in this majority culture. I'm a white straight man and I didn't have some sort of emerging, you know, I've had uh, the the vicissitudes of figuring out sexuality and, and everyone's got their particularities that they deal with, but nothing nearly as turbulent, for instance, as recognizing that I was trans. And so I would like to have some context on that, like timeline. When, when did, when did this start coming up? When, when, what was the straw that broke the camel's back that you sort of, okay, I really know that's what this is. Just, just kind of, can you fill in some of those details? Yeah. I mean, I think that any trans person in some way from their very, very earliest memories remembers something like sure. um, uh, feelings of gender dysphoria or feelings of not, not being uh, present or welcome in their given group of, uh, uh, in their given gender uh, or whatever that may be, but I I found myself, especially when I when I started to go through puberty, and of course this is like obviously going to be a common tale, but I started to feel these kind of like wow something is really wrong here. This isn't what uh, is supposed to be happening to me, and this is when I think I dialed all of my self destructive tendencies up to to ten. You know, I really really uh, started to. Um, basically say, you know, live with abandon and say, well, my body doesn't matter to me. And, mm. and that was all obviously just a coping mechanism because right. I didn't really have the language to describe. This is still a, a long time ago. The trans was not in the, the public dialogue in the way that it is now. You know, the, there was a, the examples of trans people in, in media, for example, were always uh, prostitutes and, and drug addicts and people who were irredeemable and were probably wa- wind up murdered or, uh, well, or the, otherwise, yeah, or murderers know. like the like the character in Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Absolutely, he's transvestite, not transsexual, but still, yeah. But the line there gets blurred too. I mean, like I think a lot of people, trans women, would say, like, well, the first instance of of transness I saw in film was like uh, Divine, who wasn't a, obviously not a trans woman either, a drag queen. But right, the, right. those, I think, those histories, if you go back to. Um, the 50s and 60s Stonewall era stuff too, you'll see that those worlds were intertwined. They always were until sure. the last like 10 years or so, drag and trans started to sort of become a different thing. It's actually really, was- really funny. Jonathan Demi, who did who made Silence of the Lambs, was actually very progressive in his politics and, and his morality and stuff. 
And there was actually quite a bit. He felt so bad about the way that that character in Silence of the Lambs had been kind of taken as transphobic that that is the impetus for him making the film Philadelphia, which was like his attempt to like do something to offset that for the gay community of like uh, and and totally succeeded. And I would I would imagine that like Philadelphia plays, you know, if you could if you could map it out somewhere near the level that Will and Grace plays in like actually changing like average Americans minds on some of that stuff. But I just thought that was interesting. He didn't intend for it to be that kind of – it ends up being kind of a transphobic sim- symbol of like the serial killer in drag. It's like another example of his depravity kind of a thing. And so then he goes and makes Philadelphia. Yeah, I mean that's incredible. I didn't know that actually. But the – but the, I mean it, you know, we're, we were used essentially as comedic effect or like a, sure. some sort of horror show or whatever. Well, even so gay it, jokes like – like oh, the forty-year-old yeah. virgin, which is two thousand six, has a whole. You know how I know you're gay mm-hmm. thing, and of course you can take it. You can take that as homophobic. You can choose to take it less so. But the fact remains, you wouldn't you wouldn't <laughs> put that in today. And it's a big. It's a pretty big chunk of the of the comedy in that movie. So it would be hard, I think, for anyone who was living through their formative years at that time, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, to not internalize some of this stuff. Totally. To say, um, well, that's okay. Well, I'm, I, I have some feelings about this, but I am not going to engage that at all. I, I don't have any interest in, right. in discussing my gender with anyone. So I, I kind of let it um, sit on the back burner. And I think a lot of people who transition later in life and later in life, I don't mean forties and fifties, but I mean like after you've gone through puberty and after essentially the damage is done to your body uh, with regards to masculinization and, and how you grow that you kind of just jam that down as much as you possibly can. And what you'll find over time is that it, it bubbles and bubbles and bubbles and eventually it boils over. And in some, for some people, that's just a way that they'll, they'll lash out, they'll have a a, a breakdown and they'll get hospitalized. And then they, uh, and then they get, get over it and move on. And then they find their next uh, drama to live through. And then it'll just continue to bubble under the surface forever. I think there's a lot of people that probably have some kind of doubts about their gender or some sort of feeling about them that aren't ever going to pursue them for one reason or another. And I respect that. I think that, it's inconvenient at the very least to transition because you're basically having to rewrite your story. You're basically having to reintroduce yourself to all these people. But for me, there wasn't, it wasn't really something that I could move on from. Uh, It was about my mid twenties was when it really started to hit the fan. And I'd, I'd had, you know, at the risk of sounding melodramatic, I, I felt like I kind of had a choice I could take the steps that I needed to become the person that I wanted to try to be, or I could die. And, and that's mm. like not, um, not a decision that people should have to be faced with. I, I think yeah. that people, uh, most of us have difficult um, choices to make and, and difficult um, situations that they run up against. But this particular dilemma of whether or not to transition or whether or not, am I even trans and am I making the right choice? Uh, you kind of agonize over it, but there is this breaking point. There is this point at which you have to say, well, this is it. And I did it. I kind of dove headlong into it. And I think it was 20, 2014 now 
that I started taking hormones and I changed my name and I had to come out to everyone in my family and, and my friends. And, and most of them were really genuinely very supportive. I, I felt really blessed at the time. I felt like, wow, like I thought that this was going to be the end of so many relationships in my life. And it actually just wound up being another sort of bump in the road. This is just something that happened in my life. And now, you know, now I feel like I, I feel like I'm mostly supported but that that journey from the doubts, the issues, the the self-destructive feelings to uh, that self-actualization, that realization, it eats up a chunk of your life. I mean, For I sure. don't I don't remember a good chunk of my life from that period because I was so tormented. I felt so lost. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about some of this stuff before coming back around to the Bible and your your rediscovery of faith, just because it seems like thematically we're here. I have wanted to talk with someone about some of this stuff for a while. It is, uh, I think, as everybody understands, a conversational minefield in 2020. And, and in some sense, it's more that way for me than you because I don't have the protection of my status. <laughs> you know, I am I am for a lot of folks the enemy uh, if I express any kind of doubts about any aspect of this from, you know, the mainstream culture or majority culture. So I, I need to say a few things to be very clear where I'm coming from here. One is as a training psychologist, I take the DSM serious seriously. I believe gender dysphoria is real. There is a, a shit ton of evidence to back it up as a genuine disorder. And uh, I have no doubt personally from what I know that reassignment surgery, hormone therapy, uh, all of these things for consenting adults – are a legitimate option, especially when someone has been diagnosed by a physician, by a psychologist or whatever. Like these are complex medical decisions and personal decisions to make. And I respect not only their right to make that with their doctor, but I also respect the evidence and the research in the medical and psychological community about these issues. So that's the first thing I have to say. So I'm, I just want to be clear about that. I, I do have concerns though and there are a couple axes let's start with one that is a uh, that relates to something that you just said you talked about how waiting to transition until later is quote after the damage is done that that like your your body has gone through it's whatever it's natural it it's uh yeah i guess it's natural sort of hormonal and, and sexual cycle and then you've got a sort of a finished product, so to speak, in a way, rather than intervening earlier on in the process. And I get that. I recognize that as a danger of waiting. But I think that it's complicated by the fact that that has to be balanced out against another possible danger, which is that if you go too early, you might make a change before some of these things would be naturally worked out in your body uh, in other ways, like for instance, puberty is very hormonally turbulent. There are people who have experienced like a lot more same-sex attraction during puberty, but then not so much once it all settles down. There's also the issue of your prefrontal cortex fully connecting to the rest of your brain. This is why teenagers are so bad at forecasting the future, and and that's why they make stupid decisions like get in a car with their drunk friends because they literally can't see the future as well as they'll be able to eight years later or something like that. And with something like 
some of these therapies, which can affect fertility, they can affect, they can cause physical pain. And I'm not an expert on this stuff. I'm just kind of, I'm out of my, I'm definitely outside my own expertise here. I'm just speaking as someone who's gleaned bits here and there from things I've heard and read. But it does seem like there is an inherent issue with an inability to predict the future and making a huge decision about your future, right? So now obviously you want a doctor involved, maybe you want parents involved, and that helps buffer those things. But to me, that's just the, that's one way of thinking about the balance here. We've got these two goods and two evils corresponding to each other. And where do we, how do we rate them? So I've spoken for a while. Let's get you in on this. Well, this is like the hot, hottest hot button issue, right? Um, In trans discourse. And I think it's the thing that people who are critical of uh, gender reassignment surgeries or gender reassignment treatments or, or just uh, being trans in general, that they're critical of this because, and for good reason, because there are people who make mistakes who aren't necessarily feeling what they think at the time they're feeling, especially at a younger age. And they make uh, irreversible changes to their bodies. Although I think the irreversibility of them is a little overblown. Hmm. There's definitely certain situations where people make rash decisions. And, and I don't, I don't know if there is a neat and clean answer to this as far as who waits and who gets to pursue things and who is who uh, how you test into to being truly transsexual or um, whether or not you are just expressing a gender variance that I think a lot of kids teens would express in some way or another, you know, the goth movement or the punk movement has always been rife with like androgyny and, and people who are experimenting with who they are outwardly presenting as. But overall, I see this issue as something that maybe should be continually gatekept. And I think the gatekeeping thing is, is like a, a dirty word in the trans community because a lot of people had to suffer through sort of torturous or, or unnecessary or totally, um, unfair treatments to, to have to get the treatment that they needed to be who they are. And, yeah. and the real life experience thing is something that still goes on in the UK. Um, having to live for two years as the gender that you want to present as with a, essentially having no help. Mm-hmm. No. Um, and, and I could be wrong about that. That may have been changed, but as recently, I know as a few years back, people still had to do that in order to get treatment from the NHS. And, depending on where you are in this country, there are places where like Portland, where I live, you can walk into a minute clinic and say, I would like some estrogen, please. And they will just give it to you. Whereas there are other places. um, Can there be something in between those two? Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like this is, this is, I guess this is the centrist in me that always gets frustrated that like, why does it like, it's hard. Of course it's hard. And the discernment is difficult, but like, both of those seem worrisome to me on either end. Like what kind of damage can be done making someone live this way? Yeah. Without any sort of help for two years before they qualify. But then what also what damage can be done by just taking, just taking pills without a (laughs) physician involved, you know, like, yeah, the notion of informed consent is is an interesting one because if they're, what they're basically saying is, well, you are an adult now. And this is only in adulthood that you can do sure. this, right? Yeah, you can't yeah. do this when you're 16 years old. Yeah. But you're an adult now and you can do what you want with your body. If this is what you want to pursue, 
then go for it, right? And and yeah. when when you're an adult, starting hormone replacement therapy uh, or cross hormone sex therapy is uh, something that will have less of a long term effect if you decide, well, this isn't for me. I'm going to go back. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of things that will change, especially if you go for years and years and years. But um, for some people who just start to try it, it doesn't mean that it, they're they're going to make some irreversible damage and and uh, and ruin their bodies forever. Infertility is one of those things that people always bring up, but in right. reality, uh, it, it takes years and years, sometimes more than a decade, for that to actually have an effect, as far as the um, you know the level of hormones that people take to transition. But there is, you're right. Ha- there has to be some sort of happy medium between let the kids do whatever they want, because I, I genuinely believe, and and this is something that I think in some of the more gender critical people that I know and identify with in certain ways, that there are some kids who are in their teens and are genuinely trans. They want to transition because it's the right thing for them. They will be happier if they do it. And I know that those people exist, but I think in 2020, and this is probably not as true in 2000 or 2005, but in 2020, there's probably an equal number of people who see trans as like the zeitgeist of the moment and are wanting to join up with something that may not be their actual um, truth or their this actual This is the path. worry. This is the big worry. And I'm not as familiar with the evidence as I like to be, but I do understand that there's evidence, for instance, of entire friend groups transitioning. And that is a major red flag because that is not what we're saying. It, you know, like that's not a reason to to transition. The reason to transition is that for whatever reason, you got the brain and body such that you need to switch this up. And that should happen statistically randomly. Uh, that is not the kind of thing, you know, you don't you're not drawn to that because cool people do that. Like that's not <laughs> a good reason to go through this very turbulent process that, as I'm sure you would admit to, ha- it is difficult. It has consequences. It was the right thing for you to do. But what if what if you had done it just because it was cool or something like that? And and this is, again, where the younger you are, the more of a worry that is because you're less developed, you're less uh, self-aware, you are more driven by peer pressure, all these things, right? So the the changes are more lasting, et cetera. So all of it gets ratcheted up the younger a person is. And the older they are, the less worried I am. If a 40-year-old is transitioning because it's the zeitgeist, well, okay. They'll, that person <laughs> will <luck>. probably figure <laughs> out that it's not them after a little while. And, you know, who knows what kind of damage. Maybe there's some relational damage there. If they have kids, that could be weird. You know, there's stuff to consider. But I'm just so much less worried about a 40-year-old than a 14-year-old in that regard. And, and you have to balance this um, argument of like trans as this contagion that's like poisoning our youth sure. uh, against the fact that like being transsexual is real. It's a thing that actually happens in, yeah. our, in the world. And um, there are people whose lives are uh, improved, maybe not immediately, but over time by being able to transition. Sure. And like the path, I think a lot of people – in 2020, again, I'm talking in the current day as opposed to 10 years ago, there are a lot of people who can sort of dabble in it and then move away from it. And 
you know, play with this idea of being gender fluid or, or whatever, and even pursue hormone therapy and eventually walk away from it and say, well, that wasn't really for me, or that wasn't my path. And, and that's a fluidity that they have now, but years ago it was all or nothing. And so I do think that, yeah, I mean, this is a a difficult topic to navigate because I don't want at any point to come off as somebody who like thinks people shouldn't transition as, as much as the account that I have and, and what actually created this this podcast that I'm doing now yeah. is this joke about going, oh, I should have never transitioned in this sort of like Charlie Brown way. The the notion of transitioning itself, I don't think is there's anything wrong with that inherently. And I think that uh, people do it in any number of ways and they experience that in any number of ways. Me personally, when I started the transition, it was a very tumultuous point in my life. And it was something that I had to do. And for the first few years, there were people being like, God, you're a mess now. Like, what the hell happened to you? You used to be mm. normal. Not normal, but you know, yeah. you used to, you used more, to seem, but, more well adjusted or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. So now, as you're going through the early stages of hormone therapy, your brain is kind of changing and you're, um, you're fixating on certain things and, and dysphoria tends to get ratcheted up, I think, early on in hormone therapy because mm. um, you start to see changes, but they're not fast enough. They're not what I needed to happen. Mm. It's not doing what I need to do. And, and you know, God help you if, if you try to go out and get um, any kind of surgery that isn't covered in your state. Like, for example, I've, I've tried and failed three times to get facial feminization surgery just because of the way that my face developed. It's difficult to, the phrase that trans people use is pass. And you sort of become this permanent outcast in a way. Um, And there's certain things that can't be changed. And there's certain things that you can't correct with any kind of treatment. So I just want people to know like that this journey is not always a very happy one. Eventually you can become happier. Eventually you can grow into the sort of person that is more at peace and happier, but it can take a while. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I just, I have one little thought on one of the mechanisms I think that gets in the way of finding or even just like in good faith attempting to find the happy medium as we've been talking about. And that is that the incentives of activist groups, broadly speaking, not just in the trans community, but in tons of different issues are not well aligned with finding those happy mediums. The example I always use is a story from Michael Ware, former aide to Obama, that during Obama's first term, there was a like a bipartisan bill, an abortion reduction measure, basically that some groups on the left and right had had worked on together, or maybe some Congress people or something, whatever. It's bipartisan. It was shot down both by Obama's basically handlers who said, you can't be seen by your supporters to be doing business with pro-life people. And it was shot down by pro-life activist organizations who realized it was against their incentives to be seen to be working with the enemy, that their donations would go down, basically. And so here we could have reduced abortions, the thing we ought to agree on across the divide. And that didn't happen because the incentives were wrong on both sides. And so, you know, the incentives, I understand, especially you know trans trans activism disability activism these are like kind of low powered in in terms of you know not as many people not as much political clout or whatever i get the scrappiness of that and i understand that the incentives you you punch up and you mm-hmm. get more 
attention and donors and you and then you believe that your cause is being furthered and I understand that but I think that a lot of times those incentives actually end up hurting finding the best solution and that's not really a trans thing that's just an activism thing that I have recognized over time and progressive activism in general I think takes this all or nothing attitude and it's something that's like even if the end result that you're arguing for is the thing that's right that the, the thing that we should be doing if your takeaway from that is do what I want right now or fuck you yeah. that's not going to solve the problem in the way that you think it's going to solve it so in that way tying it back into trans activism there's so many trans people who say don't you dare put any limits on how we decide to transition or or what we do with our bodies at any age and I think maybe what you're trying to say is let's not keep people who need to transition from transitioning. But totally. the end result of that is we're canceling people for saying that uh, people have doubts in their lives and uh, people change. You know, I, I think that it's it, to ignore that is in entirely bad faith. Well, I think we agree on that. I want to take a break and come back and talk about your conversion story. But while we're on this subject, I, you do need to explain to me the trans regret Snoopy moniker. I just, I'm not online enough to sort of get the cultural context for that. So what is trans regret like a thing? Apparently I'm very unaware. And then how the hell is Snoopy from Peanuts <laughs> tied into that? And, and, you know, why did you start this and when did you start it? So trans regret is a thing. Um, and it's a thing that's like, it's almost been memed into a problem by people who on the gender critical side of things use as like this, this silver bullet. So, well, what if you regret being trans? Mm -hmm. Can you imagine you've made, you've made all these changes and then you just want to go back in reality. It's a, it's a fairly rare occurrence, although it does happen. And I think that there are cases out there where you see, especially now when people are getting kind of swept up into this, Oh, well, all my friends are transitioning. That must mean that I'm trans too. It's a more legit worry as it becomes more zeitgeisty if exactly. people are doing it for, quote, the wrong reasons, basically non-biological yeah. reasons. right? As transition becomes more common, I think that it's it's going to be something that we see more of. But when we when I started this account yeah. and, 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 you know, this was five years ago, I think 2015, it was actually relating to this um, piece of trans art in general, trans like. Uh, art of the moment is kind of precious and like uh, lots of animals and lots of like, you know, pink and, and blue and white flags and yeah. things like that. Okay. And it, it all kind of comes off as um, a little bit almost condescending, like in the way, like, do you think I'm a child? Like I, mm. I, <laughs> I'm making your, I'm making all these changes in my body to like be who I really am. And I, I I'm not a furry. Okay. So stop <laughs> using that, that angle to, to a pander to me. Yeah. Yeah. So there was, there was this, um, it's a little bit of a punk rock attitude for you there. <laughs> yeah. Full it circle. is definitely, uh, yeah. against the, sure. But there was a, a, a comic at the time that was essentially like a trans Snoopy comic. And I've actually forgotten the name of it now, but there was, it was, tr it was Snoopy with like this sort of like swooping, um, long hair uh -huh. and like dressed like a secretary or whatever. And, um, it all struck me as like, kind of like, this is so silly. So there was an edit of one of those 
cartoons that, uh, you know, I, I'd made, which basically like took out the words that were in the bubble and the, and the bubble just said, I should never have transitioned. And that was the first like trans regret Snoopy meme that I made. Okay. Um, and this, I think in a way ties into my childhood because growing up in the twin cities, there are Snoopy statues all around town, uh, Prince Snoopy and, uh, you know, baseball Snoopy and Vikings. Is this where Peanuts is from? Is this Charles Schultz, right? Yeah, he's from, I think he's from Minnesota. Yeah. So there were these Snoopies, different kinds of Snoopies all around. And I think in my head, it kind of clicked like, how funny is this? Like, what if there was a trans regret Snoopy? That was the Snoopy that they decided to like, uh, you know, layers the trans community. So it doesn't make, there's no need explanation. Okay. Frankly, it's almost like an albatross now because people know the name and they immediately connect to the name. They think that's hilarious. How absurd and how weird is that? But now it's like, there's no need explanation for this. It's just been something that's been cooking for five years. Yeah. And then let's actually, let's talk about anonymity too, before we take a break, because I want to just, I want to get deep into the faith stuff when we come back. So you are anonymous. You don't use your name. You know, you, you talked about where you live and where you're from, but that's about it. And there's a lot of possible reasons to be anonymous. I have a I have a really good friend who published a book anonymously with a, a co-author, and they both did not use their names, and they had some reasons for that. I think there's some Sermon on the Mount reasons actually to be anonymous uh, in terms of go into your closet and close the door. You know, the people who do stuff out in public, they've received their reward, and we we had some pretty fun back and forth about that on your podcast about how that applies to podcasters who are either named. And branded like me or anonymous like you. But what's the anonymity about for you in particular? I think that it serves two purposes. Like the the account itself is what had the momentum behind it. And it's how I connected with a few people that I wound up having on my show. So in a way, it had to be through that account. It wouldn't just be through my name because my name doesn't mean anything to anyone. And I thought that if the goal here was to put out a message of, you know, the advantages and and the good things about connecting with the Bible and, and, and reading, reading scripture. And, and maybe if you want to understanding the message of Jesus and believing in right. him, that that was the only way that anyone would ever go, Oh, sure. Let's a Bible podcast. Let's click on this. And it was something that nobody expected to, which I think well, generated more sure. interest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's when I saw trans regret Snoopy presents the Bible, which I told you as well on your show is an all time podcast title, uh, especially if you're going for a little bit of bewilderment. So I think uh, mission accomplished in that regard there. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, um, the notion of using trans regret Snoopy, not just as like a, a, a clicks generator, but as also like the other part of the use for it was to kind of separate myself and like any attempts of anyone to say that I'm, I'm trying to like get fame off of this, or I'm, sure. I'm trying to exploit the Christian message in order yeah. to like uh, garner like uh, sponsorships and things like that. I, I've said before, I'm never going to monetize this show. I'm not going to, um, to do this in a way that I think glorifies me as a person. Although I don't judge anybody who monetizes their shows because if they have a product that's actually good enough for people to want to pay for it, I think that they should pursue that. But to me, it just became this like, well, this is just a vehicle that I'm using to get this message out into the world. And it is something that I feel like piques people's interest in whatever way, in whatever strange, or uh, in some ways people see it as like a target of, of, uh, of ire. Hmm. So even then they'll hate click it because they've right. never seen anything like it before. Well, and they should have to deal with the fact 
that like there is a trans person interviewing oftentimes other queer people having a genuine interaction with the biblical text and and like they should have to feel that discomfort because i think that that puts them as like the wrong character in for instance one of jesus's parables it puts them <laughs> as the older son you know or something like that right it puts them as the scribe trying to catch jesus in a in a trap or something by asking a question uh and so that's good that's a good kind of natural consequence for them to have to feel in, mm-hmm. in their own kind of progression. Well, let's take a little break. And when we come back, let's dive into uh, your conversion, reconversion, whatever you want to call it, and kind of uh, your current love affair with Jesus and the text, which I, <laughs> I find so interesting. I can't wait. So uh, Trans Regret Snoopy and I talk about this during this episode. Uh, In about a week, there will be a patron-only exclusive episode where she and I talk through our prayer practices. But the most recent patron-exclusive episode is a two-hour Q&A between myself uh, and Josh Gilbert, our editor here. And he asked questions that various listeners brought in. Uh, So there are questions like, my biggest fear or temptation as somebody with a platform, the topic that I avoid in Christian conversations, um, how I describe the Bible these days, what phrases I use, stuff like that. We get into a little politics. We get into, I don't know, a little bit of shop talk around making a podcast. So if you want to hear that or this upcoming additional chat about prayer with TRS, become a patron, patreon.com slash Coke. There's a link in the show notes. It's $5 a month. And it also includes membership in the patron-only Facebook group, which I think is the real benefit. A fantastic online community, a truly safe space in the best sense of that word to ask these tough questions, uh, to get resources and feedback from other people who are going through or have gone through very similar things. So if you want to join, patreon.com slash Coke, and we'll get back to it with Trans Regret Snoopy. This is another way that I I'm trying to be I have to be careful with my language because some of the terms that come to mind are not mean they come off different than I mean them. Like your straightforward faith. Your it some of the way you talk about the Bible and the gospel is like totally unadorned. It is it is the way that like a baby boomer mom might talk about it at a Bible study in, in some ways. I mean that in a good way. This is what you see how this is hard for me to frame this. I Absolutely. mean that in a good way as someone who occasionally gets very sick of talking about this stuff with like people with advanced degrees, you know, whatever, like all the time and and abstracting everything out as far as possible. You said something on in our conversation. You said salvation is so real. I thought that might be a way to kind of start getting into this story of of your conversion or reconversion, however you want to call it. What, what do you consider? I mean, do you consider that you were a Christian in some sense before or that you really weren't until you had this conversion experience? I think that when I was younger, I was practicing faith as a necessity, you know, as part of my, my familial life. And it was something that I did because that's what we did. 
And then it took, I think, me falling away from faith and from the church in order to create a sense of my belief that was uniquely my own. Sure. Um, so when I said like salvation is so real, I, I'm not really referring to other people's interpretations of that, but the salvation that I felt when I came back to God and and started really engaging in earnest with the gospel. And I'm, I'm not sure how much detail you want about the timeline of all of this, but in, you know, about last year, I felt myself kind of, uh, again, feeling lost, feeling empty. I didn't feel like I had um, something to, to believe in at all. I couldn't even believe in myself. Mm. So I started to kind of put my tendrils out like into the spiritual world. I started engaging with, with Christian music again. I started um, trying to meditate. I try, I tried to do all these things that would maybe help that mind, body, spirit connection a little bit. And I think in a way I, I was brought back into Christianity because of the history that I'd had and because it was a connection that was being made in my mind. But the Christianity that I was, that I found myself practicing was drastically different than the one that I had grown up in. And it almost had more similarities to like evangelical Christianity today, which is so weird because especially in the trans community or the queer community or the gay community or whatever, that word is, it's a dirty word. (laughs) Evangelicalism sounds like something that, oh, why would anyone? A lot of progressive um, theologians and commentators today say things like, evangelicalism is synonymous with racism or, you know, that kind of like very strong language, which I think is, I think is overblown and, and factually inaccurate, but I recognize the experience from which statements like that come and how it can feel like those words are synonymous for a lot of people. Yeah. It's, it's oversimplified. And, and I think that a lot of people who have experienced like spiritual abuse or have, have gone through um, their own sort of deconstruction in, in their lives would equate that because a lot of those negative experiences were brought on by their involvement with that particular church. Although the argument can be made that any church that gets big enough is eventually going to have these people that are abusing their power, abusing the people that they're, they're essentially in charge of or are supposed to shepherd. I, we can't go down that road because it will take forever, but (laughs) yeah, I mean like the, the recent news about the Boy Scouts, how they are going to end up settling something like five times the sexual abuse cases that the Catholic church in America has settled. Uh, I don't know, you know, I'd, I'd like to do some more math there in terms of people involved and whatever, but that's not a good sign in terms of like, Oh, well you could just find a safe place somewhere else other than the church where you won't have an issue. Like, you know, like there's, there's some risk baked in to sort of anything. Uh, and especially anything where adults are around children in any kind of, semi or unsupervised like we don't solve it by simply removing the church i guess is what i'm saying no Uh, there's some bigger issue at play yeah and drawing that parallel i think is really problematic because i think that every church in some way has something to give to christianity in general right and i think that people see these clear linear divisions between evangelicalism presbyterianism uh between uh, or sort of non-denominational evangelicalism and then presbyterianism being Episcopalian or Catholic, there are these differences between each one of these groups, but each one of them is contributing something really important. We talked a little bit about this on the show too, about how the routine of Catholic prayer is amazing for centering yourself and Mm -hmm. for 
getting in touch with the, that sort in using that repetition for uh, connecting with Jesus. But the evangelical um, sort of charismatic approach too, it's so invigorating and it's so, it, it makes you feel more alive. It makes you feel more in touch with God. Yep. So, well, good. So, so let's, was, um, we were getting too abstract. So let's yes. use that as a way. <laughs> Tell me, like, what, did you have a momentary experience, this, this conversion or reconversion? Was it accumulated? So you, where, where we left off was you kind of started putting your feelers out there, trying a few things. What happened next? Well, I think that there were a few main experiences that really brought me specifically back to Christianity and to being a follower of Christ. But one of the main ones I think was one of the worst sort of depressive uh, kicks that I've ever had in my life. One of the worst uh, sort of spans of time where, you know, you wake up and it's like, there's this loud clanging sound going on in your head at all times for Mm -hmm. a week at a time, you basically lose it because you can't focus on anything. And all you can think about is, you know, all the, all the flaws that you have and all the terrible things that you've done. And, and it basically, it robs you of your life. And this was around the same time that I started to kind of toy with, with religion again, and spirituality again. Would you be comfortable with the language of like deep clinical depression? Oh, 100%. I mean, yeah. And I've, I've sought treatment for depression for my entire life. And, and I'm not more of an anxiety guy myself. (laughs) My interaction, my experience of depression, I have had some, it tends to be for me more since college. Anyway, it tends to be more acute and short term and the anxiety is more rolling and ongoing, although also acute in terms of panic attacks, but well, that not has its me. own. Yeah. That yeah. has its own sort of crisis moments. Right? right. And, and so like in, in the, in the, the throes of one of these, I was, I decided to pray because nothing else was working, right? I'm on these medications. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, and at the time I was sort of, I'm going to, I'm trying to meditate or I'm trying to do this and nothing was working. So I just tried to pray and praying to specifically praying to Jesus, because that was the prayer tradition that I grew up in. Right. And I felt, uh, an unburdening and th- this sounds, and, and if I start to sound like a fortune teller, stop me, but this is, this is this, I felt a deep sense of, Christ being with me, I mm. felt like that I was hearing a voice that was saying it's time or it's, it's, it's now we're going to do this now. And so it was like this, this guiding in that direction. And I think there was still doubt in my heart. I think there was still kind of these feelings like, well, you can't, I mean, after everything that you've read and everything that you've done and all this non-belief that you've practiced in your life, like how could you possibly come back to Jesus at this point? And there was like a traumatic experience that I had earlier this year where my partner was actually struck by a car crossing the street and the car was going 30, 35 miles an hour. I mean, it absolutely could have been a fatal situation. And they walked away essentially unharmed. Wow. And of course, unharmed meaning like, you know, a cut, a cut above the eye and, and, you know, muscle soreness and things, yeah. broken bones and no um, spinal damage or anything wow. like that. The sorts of things that could absolutely cause someone to um, have a disastrous injury. Uh, this event, seeing it play out and then going, Oh my God, they're okay. I prayed with them in the, uh, in the ER when, when we were waiting for the doctor to come back in to say, yeah, we just did the CAT scans and, and, and we said some prayers together. And that was, I think really what cemented it for me because it felt like there was no way that that could have gone the way that it went without some sort of spiritual intervention. Hmm. And I, I really don't like to 
just like put God into good things that happen because there's a risk there of just saying, oh, well, then it's all off of me. Then I don't have to do anything. If there's a good thing that happens, that's God. If there's a bad thing that happens, that's the devil or the enemy. I like when people say the enemy. It sounds yeah. so so mystical. <laughs> but yeah, that was, I think, really the hard turn for me. And then um, I started to, I bought a Bible and then eventually I bought four <laughs> and different translations and trying to engage with it. And then I, I started picking up other books about Christianity. I read some sort of evangelical, like new modern age evangelical books. And then I read some old books. And I remembered when I was actually going through, when I was going through college, we had to read all kinds of um, sort of middle English and early English texts, Julian of Norwich and the cloud of unknowing yeah. and Pilgrim's progress and things like that, that like, at the time, I wasn't thinking about this in spiritual ways, but as I came back to them after having these experiences of, you know, feeling like I heard God and feeling like I saw God, it all of a sudden sort of started to click in me. And and so by spring, I was talking to people about Jesus again, and, and I was engaging with people about, you know, in, in in faith and trying to explain to them, like, this is what happened to me. And it's such an incredible thing. Since then, the symptoms of the depression that I have have uh, have been alleviated to a point where I feel like I can live every day without feeling that again. Um, and I'm not saying that that's going to be forever. I'm not saying that sure. Jesus cures depression. I think that that's also a slippery slope because yeah. you don't want people to say, pray it away. But I do think that finding a sense of purpose, finding something larger than myself has helped me remove the toxic tendencies and the toxic um, sort of brain waves that I had been dealing with. Okay, there's a lot in there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I would I want to ask about the moment before you came back that you mentioned. You said you had this qu internal question of like how can you come back to this after all you've done, after all these years of unbelief or whatever, you know, shouldn't you trust your the intuitions you had back then to walk away? I'm wondering if at that moment was your trans identity part of that or were you like, was there a part of you that thought, oh, also will God accept that? Or was that actually not part of it? And it was more just about, well, I have walked away. I should stay walked away maybe or something like that. More than I think my concerns with God having a problem with it, I felt as though like if I were to try to involve myself in the church again, that I couldn't find a church that would be supportive of me or that would welcome me. And, you know, the first thing I did when I started feeling like I was going to go back to church pre-COVID was find churches that I thought were going to be welcoming of yeah. me and accepting of me. And there's this website called Church Clarity, which I yeah. used a little bit to try to find churches that were open and accepting and, yeah. and welcoming. And it's weird because oftentimes I would, um, you know, listen to sermons from that church or read their mission statements and things like that. And I found it all kind of fluffy and mm. I couldn't connect with it. And so I think what led me down, what, you know, what makes me sound more like an evangelical now is connecting more with churches that even though they may not necessarily be the most welcoming to me as a person, their message resounds with me more thoroughly. So it's almost perfect because in this time, I engage with mass. I engage with services via the web. You know, I, right. I listen to sermons on podcasts. I listen or I watch live streams of services. So at this point, I'm less concerned about whether or not that church is going to be welcoming of me as a per person because they don't know me as a person. Yeah. 
Well, um, let's talk a year from now about that when the vaccine <laughs> is around. But you, I, it is interesting. Part of this is from our, our conversation on your show. But you've got a real charismatic streak. And there's tons of churches that are affirming. There are very few affirming churches that are charismatic. Uh, there is, for whatever reason, you know, in the West, a very strong correlation between charismatic religious observance and conservative culture. And I, that's a fascinating question. I am now realizing that I've read nothing about that. I'd, I'd be curious to, if anybody has uh, seen a, a book or a research article, please email me because I'd love to read that. Um, I don't know what that connection is. You, you get a little bit in, in the occasional kind of vineyard flavored church on like the coasts. I do have friends that go to a a bit more progressive vineyard church, like in San Luis Obispo area in California, but it's not a, you know, there's no major, there's no denominations certainly mm-hmm. that are like openly charismatic and gay affirming that I'm aware of. So if I'm wrong, please somebody correct me. The connection there too is like uh, funny because these churches do the best, I think, at re-engaging people who have fallen away from the faith, but then they also have the most exclusionary like social policies yeah. and, and, and moral codes and things like that, which yeah. I think is so strange because it's like, do you realize that being this charismatic and connecting with Jesus in this way that feels so deeply real and so deeply spiritual, like if your goal is to grow the church like Jesus is saying for us to do in the Bible, to call to the other nations and to bring people in, to get the Gentiles in and and to bring all these other people in. If that's the goal, then shouldn't your message be uh, one that's welcoming? Because when I was trying to listen to more sermons from more open churches, UCCs and and Methodist, um, progressive Methodist denominations, I couldn't connect with it because it felt it felt like a wet noodle, you know, like there's yeah. nothing for me to grab onto here. The, the culture of mainline churches and most white high churches, so Episcopal, Catholic, whatever, that are largely white, is just like a more buttoned up kind of, we prefer the abstract, we're, we're pretty distrustful of strong emotions, very distrustful of things like prophecy or laying on of hands, pretty distrustful of any sort of supernatural healing. And we're also like more highly educated and less bodily expressive in general. And so you get this clumping that I think has nothing to do with the text or theology or very little. I think the theology comes as a justification post hoc for the cultural things that feel comfortable for those people. And it's a real You've now steered us into something that I don't think we should, again, what is its own rabbit trail. But my recent episode with Tony Jones about the future and, and failures of the church and uh, th- there's something I'm so interested in is like, could there be an evidence-based model of the church that moves past those cultural preferences of most liberal people and utilizes the stuff that's really working in like mega church and evangelical contexts and charismatic contexts. Like there's just the dopamine and serotonin release of using your body and getting into more ecstatic, worshipful experiences, uh, rhythmic moving and singing together, which are literally older than human language in baked into our DNA, you know, that kind of stuff. 
I, I'm waiting for COVID to end so that like I can participate in somebody trying that out. Like I'm so interested, but I don't think we should please, please share whatever you, your thoughts you have. And then I'm going to limit myself from going down that road right now. Well, yeah, I mean, this is like a so much of a broader conversation to be having about like the nature of worship uh, between different denominations and yeah. how our social policies inform our religion and our practices. Yeah. But I do think that I've, the point there is that there is something undeniably engaging and undeniably magnetic about the practicing of evangelical charismatic churches and the way that they practice immediately engages people better i think than high church would because it's not academic and it's not uh something that requires you to 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 have an essential like a a a more widespread a knowledge of the bible you can dive in which is i think why it appealed to me because while i did read the bible when i was younger and i i did engage with it in some way then getting back to it in my 30s after having been away for so long is really difficult to do unless you have someone sort of going here, do this, you know, pushing you towards that sort of really spiritual, fulfilling experience, something that feels like it warms your heart, something that feels like it, it actually stirs your soul up. Yeah. Gosh, there's so much here. By the time this comes out, my conversation with Jim Wellman will have already come out about his research around mega churches and how he expected to write a critical book. He's a religion researcher here in Seattle at UW and ended up writing a mostly praiseworthy book of all these things that they're doing right, which surprised him. But he said that, look, evangelicalism has always been a low and middle class religious movement. And I think especially now as we see a massive education gap between the left and the right that continues further and further used to be the Democrats were the party of unions and working class people, a lot of working class whites. And that has totally shifted. And I think we see that as well in the religious environment that the mainline and high church stuff, Catholics are different because Catholicism is so culturally entrenched that it actually goes beyond these class distinctions because it's more ethnically entrenched a lot of times. But within Protestantism, you've basically got the high church and and the mainliners are the educated upper class, and they don't go as often, and they don't teach their kids about it as much. And then the lower and middle class are the megachurches and the evangelical churches and the Southern Baptists and stuff, and they do share it with their children. And that's not good, actually. It's not good to have that kind of class separation, especially in a religion. Let's bring it back to Jesus here, shall we? Uh Jesus is so critical of those kinds of class and in-group, out-group distinctions and so critical of the wealthy. And so it's it's really – yes, yes, I think it is time to – because we could just go abstract forever here. Let's bring it back to Jesus. Let me ask you this question. I, I'm just going to – I'm going to choose – editorially, we're going we're gonna to come back to the Bible here. You said something on our conversation. You said the Sermon on the Mount – or you might have said it uh, – I don't remember if it was on our in our chat or if you said it in the on your first episode, which was Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You said the Sermon on the Mount is fitting for the first episode of a Bible podcast. Uh, it was on our conversation because I said to you, you know, it's funny you should say that. I agree with you, but I don't think most people who have Bible podcasts 
would necessarily think that way. And most churches don't preach the Sermon on the Mount nearly as much as they preach from Paul, you know, et cetera. So I would, I would like you, can you motivate for us, given your own experience and story and reading, why you thought, yeah, I'll start with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think there's the obvious reason as far as my belief in Christianity and being a follower of Jesus specifically that I would want to start in the New Testament because I believe that the essentially the story of Jesus changes the whole story from the Old Testament or continues the story in a way that people may not have been expecting. Yeah, but that's what makes it distinctively Christian for sure. Yeah, the yeah. The, uh, the urge to start at Genesis is understandable because it's like in the beginning Sure, uh, and that's – perfectly reasonable. But if the approach and the approach that I take obviously is one that's Christian, if the approach is Christian, then you start with the ministry of Jesus, not necessarily his birth, because the birth then is foretold in the Old Testament. And there's all kinds of connections to Old Testament passages. But yeah. the if the message is one that's ultimately Christian, at least from my own perspective, then the Sermon on the Mount is foundational. It's where you start. This is where all the rules are written. This is the second iteration of the Ten Commandments. You know, this is this is the new rules that we're supposed to live by. And in some cases, they're actually um, contradicting things that we learned earlier on in the Bible. And I yeah. love how much the Bible contradicts itself. I actually love <laughs> seeing how one guy is going to say this and one guy is going to say this, and they don't intrinsically line up. There's actually, in some cases, no way that you can reconcile this from this. But in the ESV, which is the translation that I like to use, the, the, the words of Jesus are in red text. And I think that that actually should be an essential, an essential feature of all the biblical translations. Because what you see in the red text is Jesus speaking truth. It's almost like the only person that doesn't contradict himself in the Bible is Jesus. The message is complicated, and it's difficult to understand sometimes, and actually, uh, at, at some points, it seems impossible to follow, but that's the message that we should be following. And so that was why I yeah. think I chose the Sermon on the Mount, because it did feel like the re-energizing of the message of God. I actually, I do think, I might disagree with you in that, I think that the four Jesuses presented by the gospel writers are do have some tension with each other. And so you could call that Jesus contradicting himself, perhaps, if you want. But I don't want to get hung up on that because I'm actually far more interested in this idea that you just casually threw out there of like, I love that the how much the Bible contradicts itself. I think that <laughs> okay, this is this is like where I find you so interesting. Is that is such a strange thing for someone to say who has come back to the faith with charismatic religious experiences to then be excited about the contradictory nature of the text. I, I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of people listening perk their ears up at that moment. And so I'd like you to say more about that. Like, how is it for you that that is good news? Because I think for those of us, especially raised evangelical, where biblical inerrancy is so high up on the important doctrines and sort of the foundation of the faith that for us, we've had to unlearn that for a decade or more or whatever, and come to be okay with the contradictions, but getting to like loving the contradictions is like, <laughs> it's kind of bizarro world to me. So can you motivate that a bit? 
I think that because of the way that I came back to the Bible and I immediately started to try to engage the te- with the text in a way that sort of tried to analyze it, I don't know if it was like the English major in me that wanted to do this or if it was the fact that I bought a few different translations because right. I wanted to see, well, here's how this translation takes on this issue and here's how this translation takes on another issue. But uh, the contradictions are fascinating to me because there are so many passages in the Bible that essentially denounce who I am as a person and tell me that I, you know, I could be put to death or, or sent to hell for, for the existence of, uh, for just living my existence, for being the person that I, right. I feel like I'm meant to be. And I think if you dig deeper into the laws and the rules at that time, you'll find that a lot of the, the screeds against oppressed groups that people use as these clobber passages now were ones that were hard coded into the way that people um, understood the world at that time. Hmm. So in, in reading the passages of Paul and Timothy that say, you know, man shall not lie with man. And, and this is saying that, you know, that essentially being gay is, is wrong or, or wearing uh, women's clothes. If you're a man and wearing women's clothes right. is wrong. A lot of this stuff was part and parcel of being alive at that time. hundred percent. And, and you can see in a lot of ways how, despite the fact that we see these people are cursed and these people will be going to hell. And this is a practice that's not, that's not sanctioned by the Lord. You'll also see as many times or more that all are welcome in the eyes of God. We are all part of this community. We are all as believers. We are all part of this family. And furthermore, that to condemn other people, is to sin because your judgment is not needed in this world, that, that God has the experience and the, <laughs> and the know-how yeah. to judge people. So it's not up to you to say God hates, uh, oh, I shouldn't say that word. Uh, it's not up to you to, to, to spread this language of hate because right. at no point does Jesus ever say that you need to stand on the street corner and tell everyone what 45 groups of people are going to be going to hell. So it's like a weird meshing of, of this sort of like evangelical, like in my perspective, that's how I see it is I, I do think that the Bible has several passages where it's inerrancy could be called into question, oh, yeah. where there are passages where, well, this translation said this and this translation said this. And with four other academics pulling this apart, we've come up with four completely different explanations for what that means. Right. So this might be an example of, from the very beginning of our conversation, this theological argument that, uh, you know, contextual theologies bring something new to light. I'm I'm kind of sitting here amazed having this little experience about how maybe there is something to, as a member of the dominant culture, I don't want contradictions in the text because the text... I want to see my religious experience, my church's interpretation, my whatever flavor of faith that I'm a part of as normative, as normal. But coming from the outside, perhaps the presence of the contradictions is liberating to like if you've never been in that central seat of power or you haven't been for a long time anyway or whatever, you know, not since once you realized who that you that something was different you never were in that spot then it's like oh look how cool it is that there are these tensions and contradictions and and so the kind of hegemony the kind of like top down 
this is how it shall be is problematized by the text and has a liberative aspect to it. It stands to reason, I think, that the churches that populate the sort of upper echelons of our society, the the white Protestant uh, or Catholic white upper class people would not want to pull apart the difficult parts of the Bible. They don't want to undo that thread because that thread is what they've been hanging from this whole time. But uh, I think that as Christianity uh, spreads further in the modern world, because, you know, it used to be that there was a vision. Someone had a vision of Mary and uh, 5 million people converted because it was like, what an incredible thing that was to experience that. In the modern world, we don't, I don't think are, we are not afforded the luxury of seeing these kinds of miracles firsthand. Uh, And if we do, it's often like a deep fake video that someone has posted on Twitter (laughs) and has gone viral. You know, we don't in a world where I don't think we can even trust what is being told to us as the truth. It's our obligation to kind of pull things apart and to parse where these and it's very postmodern, really, when you think about it, because I agree the, 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 the situation of believing in a God that was at, you know, written about primarily in ancient times has to some way create itself in a simulation of itself or a, a, a version of itself in the days that we're living in now, which are at times they feel kind of um, apocalyptic, don't they? Yes, at times they do. Um, <laughs> uh, and if some of these evangelicals are right about QAnon, <laughs> oh, God. which of course they're not. Um, but let's, okay. We're going to end on some more abstract stuff. I want to, I want to pull us back to experience for a few more minutes because we're, we're running out of time here. Thank you for being so generous with your time today. You, you do have a more charismatic uh, experience of God and some of what you have talked about here and elsewhere, I resonate with because uh, for me, prayer experience, direct experience, also through spending time with my son is sort of the experiential center of my faith as well. I'd like you to, you know, without violating the Sermon on the Mounts, you know, prohibitions against sort of being too public about our piety, about our prayer. What can you tell us about it that you feel comfortable talking about that doesn't feel like bragging or sort of putting yourself on a spiritual pedestal? I'm not sure that there's going to be one like mode of prayer that works for any like group of people. I think that the the more personal that we can make our prayers, and this is echoed in the Sermon on the Mount, the more personal that we can make that prayer, the more likely we are to be able to, to connect with God through that prayer, because each of us is very different. Each of us, even though we may occupy certain sections of humanity, even though we may occupy certain social stratums or whatever, we're all very different people, and we're all going to experience our faith in a different way. And I think in this way, like I would invite anyone to just try to pray because rather than going through something like the Book of Common Prayer, which I respect and love, but isn't necessarily doesn't feel modern enough or doesn't feel relevant enough or doesn't feel like it it engages me in the same way that seeing more charismatic expressions of faith does. If you start somewhere, eventually you're going to find the right mode of prayer for you. For me, it's been some kind of melding of the traditional prayers, the Catholic prayers and praying the rosary weekly. And I know I should do it daily, but praying the rosary weekly and, um, and then daily prayer. That's a little more free form. That's a little more open and 
and it's almost like at times it feels, and this is my, my way of like bringing my burdens to God, like lifting my problems up to Jesus is to kind of treat it as though like, here are the things that are troubling me. Here are the problems that I'm having. And then here is also the things that I'm thankful for. And here are the things that I welcoming into my life that I feel like are a true blessing, but you have to do this in equal measure because if all of your prayers are just begging and, and asking and, and hoping for more, then it won't truly express, I think, the gratitude to God that is deserved for all the things that are great in our lives. Even though, like for me as a trans person, I experience all kinds of uh, weird things and, and humiliation and, and discrimination and things that it's not a frequent occurrence, but it is something that happens. So to not fixate necessarily on the negative things or the needs and to in equal measure, praise God. I mean, if you look at the, that we talked about the Lord's prayer a little bit in the episode yeah. that you did with me, and um, this is the model prayer. So if anyone wants to have like an idea of how to pray, just use that because you'll have half praising, half being amazed at the glory of God, and then half asking, uh, asking for something, asking for clarity asking for asking for purpose or or asking for guidance so I, I mean obviously like as someone who's not i'm not ordained i would like to be someday i would love to go to seminary but as someone who's not like part of the clergy i i think that that like this is how i operate i don't know if it's going to work for everybody else well that's great okay so i think what we're going to do is you and i are going to chat additionally for patrons and get into some more of these nitty gritty stuff about how you use the rosary, reading the imitation of Christ, which is something that came up in our chat, but we didn't get to um, talk through extemporaneous prayer. I actually want to talk with you about seminary a little bit as well. So for those of you who are patrons, that will be out sometime around this episode being out. But to wrap up here for everybody else, I want to spend a little bit of time about your podcast, because in some sense, this could have been part of my So You Want a Bible podcast series. I didn't put it in that series because there's so much more to talk about than just that. But let's do it at the end here. So what would someone expect? Actually, I'm going to ask you this first. What do you think your what do you think you bring to the world of Bible podcasts, just given yourself and kind of where you're coming from, your guests, your interpretive lens, et cetera. I think that it's rare to see any Bible podcast that has a majority of people who are trans or queer in some way or another as their guests, as the primary uh, load of people who are on the show. Agree. I've so, seen, uh, there's some theology shows. There's like, like Queerology uh, is a good one and stuff. And so that stuff exists, but I don't think I've seen anything that's Bible focused and maybe I just haven't been looking, but still. And, and no, you're absolutely right. And I think that the response that I would have to that is that, like, yes, queer theology exists, but I'm not trying to do queer theology. Right. I'm trying to embrace the Bible, like as it's written in its 3 million different forms as the Bible's been written in good faith with people who may be uh, somewhere along the same spectrum as me in some way or another. Although, like I said, that's not like what I necessarily need to do. It's just like the goal of my show is to earnestly engage with the text as somebody who's not, I'm not an expert. So like, if the question is, why would anyone listen to your show? Frankly, I don't know because the, <laughs> because the name is weird, but, uh, well, no, but, but you're, think... you're getting at something here. So, I, I think there's something to 
who you are and then the people that you choose to have on and the kind of differential insights, the differential life experience as it relates to the text, the different you know, hermeneutic or exegetical approaches to some particular passage that resonate with you because of those differential life experiences. I think there's real value in that. What I'd love to ask you about is maybe some examples. So most of your guests, obviously me exempted, are, have been sexual minorities of one sort or another. What are some examples of stuff that's come up in real time between you and a guest looking at this text together? You know, give, give us some meat on the bone for that kind of thing. Well, I mean, there's um, a passage that I went over from Acts about the Ethiopian eunuch that yeah. um, stirred a lot more emotionally in me than I expected. This, the, the, my guess at that point was a trans woman who, you know, has her own story to tell, and it's not my place to, to do that necessarily. But we were reading through this passage because I think a lot of sort of trans theology focuses on parts of this passage as like a, we are welcoming, we are bringing people in. And in talking through this and, and thinking about the implications of welcoming someone like that into the church, we both had this kind of experience of like, is, oh my God, like Jesus is so good. Like God is so good. Mm. Like the message is so welcoming that we, I think we both felt like this incredible uh, re-energizing of our hearts, of our faith. You know, in the same way, I spoke with um, someone who isn't necessarily as tied into the Bible and, and isn't at the at present like an actively practicing Christian. And we talked about the suicide of Judas Iscariot. And, and through that conversation, we had uh, conversations about suicidal ideation and, and wow. how it feels to be that way. Um, despite the fact that most of us don't betray Christ on a daily basis, we don't really have that urge because of a certain thing that they that we did, but because of how we're kind of wired in this world. And so engaging with that, I think, is another way that the show doesn't really line up with other biblical conversations. And, um, and you know, I've cried, on, I've cried in almost like every single episode that we've recorded so far because it has felt at the risk of sounding like Pentecostal or whatever. It has felt like there is something truly like coming into me at those at those Embrace points. it. Embrace <laughs> it. Be charismatic. I love it. And there, there's there's something else interesting in the text with Judas, too, that I feel like very rarely gets talked about, at least in sermons and stuff. But the the devil has some kind of agency in there. It's not all Judas's agency. And so Judas is to some degree a victim in that story and then ends up committing suicide. Right? It's like it isn't I mean, am I am I misremembering? Oh, yeah, it? you're absolutely right. He's punished for something that ultimately it doesn't feel like he ever really had control over. And yeah. furthermore, like the sacrifice of Jesus was written before he was even born. So it was like he was just randomly selected as the person that was going to betray Jesus. Somebody had to. Well, it wasn't going to be Peter. There's right? I mean, so, I'm <laughs> already finding some some resonance with the trans experience there, being randomly selected before you live your life. Mm -hmm. To be to be sort of this outsider or something that you're not ultimately responsible for. I mean, that's already just interesting. And then to be painted like bringing it back to the trans experience, to be painted as somebody who's like an enemy of Jesus because oh, of who we are. I mean, that all kind of ties together, doesn't it? I mean, so interesting. Not you know, not to make a. I don't know that we. I don't know if we should make a martyr out of Judas Iscariot or anything. But like, it's it's certainly it's certainly complex. The text itself presents a more complex picture. I remember my my buddy Nate, who is the singer 
in my the band that I was in for for ten years, uh, he he always found Judas to be an interesting character for this reason, and and I think he was right about that. That it's yeah, there's something weird going on there, and and he doesn't get like an he doesn't get the kind of attention that maybe such a complex figure deserves. And so, what a cool like this is exactly what I was talking about at the beginning. Like, what a cool angle and what a cool lens there for looking at this story that we think we know. Yeah, and and if you look at and we talked about this in that episode about Judas a little bit, but if you look at the sort of like the 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 text that got left behind from the canonical Bible, you'll see that Jesus and Judas were like very good friends, right? And that uh, that connection between the two of them was not just like happenstance; that they were like deeply they deeply loved each other, and you can see that by the way that Judas greeted Jesus when he led him to be, you know, when he was betraying him, he kissed him on the cheek. So like it, it becomes like this, this story of like, I'm sorry, I have to do this rather than like, this is just, uh, this is just the evil speaking through him or something. Yeah. There, there's something interesting there about like what we do naturally to the people we perceive as enemies after the story. So like Judas becomes the easiest, like, swear word to call someone you know don't be a judas (laughs) when like it's a lot more complicated and then of course you put that into conversation so in what way does jesus love judas his enemy does he pray for judas you know like it gets really cool and the last thing i'll say about judas is uh if people haven't seen it a great scorsese film is the last temptation of christ with willem dafoe which is based on a a speculative kind of liberal catholic novel you know it's not it got a lot of controversy because people thought that it was like not being true to the text or whatever, but it isn't based on the text. It's based on this novel and it's a very good imaginative work. I actually think it's a quite devout piece of, of film filmmaking, but in that film, Judas is like Judas and Peter are like the, the two second and third billing on in the film. And Judas is there constantly and, and has this push and pull relationship with Jesus throughout the ministry. And so he's really motivating kind of the Judas's move there in a narrative sense that I I have found uh, interesting to think about as well. I don't know if you've seen that film. I haven't, no. But I mean, if you think about the story too of all of the apostles, look at how many times Peter denies Jesus. Right. So like that should not be like a, a unending faith to Jesus is not the thing that is going to be the deciding factor in our salvation. It's going to be whether or not you have the good sense to come back. Right. Uh, think about how many times Peter said, I don't know if I can do this. He starts to fall and the wise is walking across the water. It's, it's, there's so many cases where the fallenness of our natures is forgiven and, and, and welcomed back that like, it, I do like to kind of play with the narrative a little bit in that way. But That's um, great. So maybe someday I'll be more intelligent on the matter. I can discuss it from an uh, from a from a more studious standpoint. I'm excited for uh, your follow up podcast, Trans Regret Snoopy Goes to Seminary, <laughs> where you I don't know you interview people about the stuff that you're learning in school. Um, well, we're out of time. We have had a nice, long, fantastic conversation here. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to following up in more detail for patrons around some of those nuts and bolts of your, your prayer life and your experiences with God. Um, obviously the show will be linked in the show notes. I'll I'll link to our episode and from there people can get to the other episodes of the show. Uh, anything else you want to say before we go? You're, you're on Twitter. I'll put your Twitter handle on there. I think you're a very fun Twitter follow. 
I was just going to say, I don't invite anyone to go to Twitter. If you're not already on Twitter, it's a terrible place. To yes. Be. But if but you if are you're on already, there. Yes. Those of us who are already in purgatory together. <laughs> it might be shill more than it is purgatory. It's, we'll... it's shale. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah, it is. It's, it's not Abraham's bosom. That would be, that would be a too, too uh, high of a, of a description. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Just, just what a fantastic conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was, it was really fun. I mean, that was just fantastic, right? You see what I was saying in the intro now, something about her. Uh, and I have really enjoyed keeping in touch since I first recorded with her on her show. And just today we were texting about how well her show is going uh, and how much I was enjoying that recent episode. So I'm excited for that follow-up episode about prayer practices. And I know that a bunch of you will be checking out her podcast, Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. Again, all-time podcast name, podcast title. Did I say that on this episode or her show? I don't know, but I'm on record. I think it's one of the greatest podcast titles I've ever heard. Um, okay, Josh Gilbert edited our conversation. Thank you to Josh. He's available for more work. His email is in the show notes. I have a link to my episode of TRS Presents the Bible, as well as a link to her Twitter handle if you want to follow her there. And I think that's pretty much it. We will see you guys next week, unless you want to head over to patreon.com slash Dan Coke, in which case you have a whole bunch of episodes just waiting for your eager ears. All right. Thanks, guys.